What's up, mi gente, and Happy New Year. A little belated at this point as we're coming into the end of January, but this is the first episode of CubaCast in 2018, and man, I'm excited. So I hope you guys all had a wonderful and relaxing holiday season and that you that you were able to stay warm because here in the Northeast, that was definitely a challenge. But man, where do I start? So 2017 was an amazing year for me. I, I started CubaCast and I really just got my feet wet when it comes to recording, editing, and striving to provide you guys with great educational content through an audio medium. And as we move into 2018, I'm just, I'm pumped for everything that's to come. I mean, this year, so much is going on. I, I'm going to be looking to really take this podcast to the next level by getting some fresh new voices in here and fresh new perspectives. So you'll get to hear from other people other than just myself. You know, I'm sure you guys are are sick and tired of just listening to me on here rant about Cuba and things like that. But I'm I'm really going to bring in some people that are going to add a lot of value, fresh new perspectives, and who are really making an impact in the Cuba space. You know, I've spent the first few months since I moved to NYC just meeting amazing people who are living out the Guano Chris mission of connecting Cubans through culture. And I'm just really looking forward to continuing to grow this network of mine and bring some of them on the podcast. I wanted to share their stories, their thoughts, and their work. And so I'm excited for that, you guys. I mean, just stay tuned. But with that being said, I want to kick off the final installment of the mini-series that we were going through before, which highlights the most insightful and eye-opening meetings from my trip to Havana last summer. I have some great content for you guys today, so just buckle up because you are tuned into CubaCast. All right, so the first thing I want to talk about is this cab ride that I was on along the Malacón. And so I actually call this meeting El Litoral because we were passing by the U.S. Embassy on this cab ride, and I noticed a very strange sight. Now, the the previous summer, so summer before last, this was the first time I had ever been to Cuba. I discovered a restaurant that was right by the U.S. Embassy called El Litoral, and I was just blown away at the quality of the food and how upscale the place was. And so when I asked the person working there if the restaurant was a paladar, the waiter kindly told me, esto, na, esto ya no es paladar, esto es un restaurante privado. So that's like verbatim. You know, he was almost insulted that I, I asked if it was a, a paladar because it was already a private establishment. So, I mean, the place, the place was incredible. That's all I can say about it. But this time, though, the scene was just completely different. El Litoral looked ransacked and abandoned. And when I inquired as to what happened, our taxita told us that the restaurant had been shut down and just torn apart after the government crackdown on private businesses. Apparently, the Cuban government had seized all of the restaurant's assets from liquor to furniture. And so I was super curious as to why this happened. I mean, such an amazing place. And after doing a bit more digging, I actually discovered that apparently El Litoral got itself in hot water after allegations of money laundering, allegations that it was purchasing supplies outside of the official government channels, and that it was paying its employees off the books. And so, guys, I, I know this may sound bad. But what you have to understand about Cuba, and it's something that I really tried to make clear in the previous episode where I highlighted the meeting that I had with Natalia, is that it's incredibly difficult to succeed in Cuba while playing by the rules. And being an entrepreneur is definitely not an exception. And the reason for this mainly is just because there's so many rules. For example, a restaurant owner is permitted to own only one restaurant in an effort to prevent the excessive creation of wealth. 
And so along these lines, Artaxita also taught us a bit about Cuba's version of the alternative minimum tax that entrepreneurs have to pay. The alternative minimum tax, if you guys aren't familiar with that, it's, it's just a tax that basically when you exceed a, a certain level of income or wealth, um, you just pay this alternative minimum in, instead of the tax rate. Um, but still, it's very high. It's, it's for someone who makes a lot of income, not the case in Cuba. But yet there, they still also have an alternative minimum tax for entrepreneurs. And so this tax really depends on the exact line of business that you're in. But an Airbnb owner, for example, an arrendador, has to pay 50%, half their income in taxes after making over just $4,000 or 100,000 Cuban pesos. And now they're allowed to deduct around 20 or 30% of their income as costs. But even so, an owner of Una Casa Particular only has to be remotely successful to incur the alternative minimum tax. So not only is it extremely difficult for an entrepreneur in Cuba to succeed playing by the rules, but even if they are successful, they still have to pay half their income in taxes. So they're going to lose one way or the other. And then, of course, you know, the, the typical Cuban spirit and Cuban mentality of resolver, siempre hay que resolver. But it's, it's really not fair, man. They, they get you any, any way you try to slice it. And so this is an unfortunate reality. I mean, it really is. But even this reality, as unfortunate as it may be, is better than one in which no private business licenses exist. All right. So that was a litoral. But seguimos. The next meeting we had was with a pastor of La Iglesia Evangelica de Cuba. And I like to call this meeting government neglect. So the pastor that we met with wanted to help us, us being Inspire Cuba, repurpose our donations for the Marabuta Charcoal Project. So I'm not going to go into this project again, but the donations were originally supposed to go to independent agricultural cooperatives in Ciego de Avila. But this pastor wanted to help us repurpose these donations, uh, and they were going to actually go to help impoverished communities in Maicí rebuild their homes and their farms that were just devastated during the tropical storms that had affected the region of eastern Cuba. And so apparently, after the storms, the government had heavily promoted that they would be sending food, supplies, and aid to the affected communities in Maicí. And Cubans were concerned about, about their fellow their fellow Cubans, their fellow countrymen out in La Punta de Maicí that really didn't have a lot of stuff and were, and were really negatively affected by these uh, tropical storms and these disasters. And so the government was heavily promoting um, that they were going to send supplies, they were going to help these communities. But as it turns out, the donations that were supposed to be unloaded in my sea for the relief efforts were actually docked and unloaded in Guantanamo, which is almost 100 miles away from my sea. And so because the donations would have had to be loaded up on a ship again in order to be transported to my sea, it's really unlikely that the donations ever made it to their destination being my sea at all. And so the pastor's point in telling us this is that communities in remote areas of the island are just by and large forgotten by their government and their country. And one of the problems of making donations to Cuba is the difficulty of ensuring that your donations actually make it to where they're supposed to go. And so just by way of background, Inspire Cuba actually made a donation to this pastor's church after we first heard about Hurricane Matthew and the destruction it caused in Baracoa. Now, the pastor used the money to purchase aid and supplies in Havana, and then he drove that all the way to the other side of the island to Aracoa and Maicí. So this was actually the first time that we were getting together in person with the pastor after he'd made that trip for us. All right, back to the meeting. 
So the pastor described to us a community that he visited in my see when he went to distribute the aid that initial time and how he was absolutely humbled at how they lived. It means so much to these destitute locals just to welcome you into their homes and maybe like make you some tea out of whatever they can find. The locals invited this pastor into their homes, although they were made of wood and straw, and they hospitably invited him to spend the night, even though their beds were just often nothing more than empty potato sacks. The locals thanked this pastor so much for his visit with whatever they had, giving him gifts and just simple gifts, maybe like seashells as an example. Um, anything they could find, these these locals would, would give to the pastor. Just so appreciative of his visit, not only because of his aid that he provided, but also just because of his humanity, his compassion, his conversation with another human being. I mean, these people are so isolated in my sea, you wouldn't even believe. And just to have another human being come and interact with them, it gives these people hope. It gives them life. And like this pastor described to us, these these testimonials of these locals saying that, hey, because you came and, and spoke with me, stayed in my house, you know, I have a reason to go on and, and live. You gave me you gave me a sense of purpose, that sense of humanity. So, I mean, overall, the story that he told us was incredibly emotional and very humbling. And if we repurposed our Marabu to charcoal donation, the, the chainsaws could improve the lives of hundreds in eastern Cuba and my sea and make an incredibly positive impact on these forgotten communities. And so that really sums up our meeting with the pastor, but I actually have an update on this since my last trip to Cuba. So after returning home, we were able to connect with a group called Baptist on a Mission based out of North Carolina. They've been making trips and donations to Cuba for years, and they're well trusted by the government. So they can get away with bringing larger items like chainsaws and equipment on their persons without the necessary import permits. And that's that's always the huge issue with importing to Cuba, you know, assuring that your donations are going to get to their intended recipients, but also these import-export permits, which are difficult to get. But these guys are very established. So... We actually touched base with them and we told them all about Marabu to Charcoal and our desire to repurpose these, this project and these donations to helping these people in my sea that are in desperate need. And Tom Beam, our main point of contact with Baptist on a Mission, was gracious enough to offer to take our chainsaws to Eastern Cuba free of charge, helping us surpass both the hurdle of the permits and ensuring that the donations would get to their intended recipients. And so I'm just elated to share with you guys right now on CubaCast that the donations just arrived in Eastern Cuba last week, and they're currently with the pastor's brother, who happens to be a close friend of Tom's. And so as soon as uh, the pastor that we're working with makes the trip from Havana back to Eastern Cuba, he's going to personally deliver these chainsaws and the protective equipment to the communities in my sea, and the residents are finally going to be able to get to work on rebuilding their lives. And so I'm just really sorry for getting sidetracked there, but man, this was just got me so excited, and I'm so happy for the people of my sea who are so loving and so deserving of this help. Okay, palante. I have just one more meeting to highlight, and this next meeting is with the independent artist Carlos Escalona Martí, better known as Caco, and he's the creator of the groundbreaking project Lugares Comunes, or Common Places. So Common Places is a project that takes a photograph of a familiar scene in the United States, such as, say, someone commuting to work on the train, and then compares it side by side with a similar scene in Cuba. So that would be someone going to work on the train in Cuba. 
And I mean, the goal of the project is to really show that at the end of the day, our two countries, Cuba and the U.S., and the wonderful people that inhabit them really aren't so different after all. I mean, despite our differences, we share many of the same dreams, challenges, and experiences. And we should be finding ways to connect based on that common ground, as opposed to just pointing out our differences and, and each other's flaws. So, so Gakko was one of the main people that Inspire Cuba traveled to Havana to meet with, since we're currently in the process of seeking funding to bring him into the U.S. and sponsor exhibitions of his work in Miami and in New York. And so this meeting was an eye-opener for us. And we were even able to get the Associated Press, who has an office in Cuba, to film our interaction with Gakko and actually give him an interview, so give him some, some publicity. And so Lugares Comunes aside, the most important insight that we received from this Cuban artist is this. First, and this is verbatim what he said, first, you must learn how to administrate your house, then your business, then your country. So this insight just came about as our conversation progressed from art and our collaboration to the Cuban political system and the changes to the Cuba policy that the Trump administration had announced that day while we were speaking to Gakko. And so in our meeting, Gakko went on to explain that the change has to come slowly from the ground up, from the mentality of the Cuban people administrating their own lives, from their homes to their businesses, and eventually their government and their country. So he's really talking about organic growth, organic change here, coming from the ground up from the Cuban people. It's only in this manner that the change can really be authentically Cuban. And the reason that people in the States are so hardline, according to Kako, is because they think that change is going to come overnight and all at once. Americans want Castro out so that they can just come in and make the changes that they see fit. Wakako, myself, and my colleague from Inspire Cuba that was there, what we all agreed on is that we would love to see the change be authentically Cuban, to come from Cubans for Cubans. But at the end of the day, I mean, as you guys know, only time is going to tell how this story will unfold. But what I always hearken back to is that analogy that I make that, you know, Cuba is like a closed door right now, not in the sense of that. Uh, things aren't changing and normalizing, but just imagine it as a closed door and we're an angry neighbor, uh, at least the hardline community in Miami of the Cuban exile community for the most part. It's just an angry neighbor trying to knock down the door and, and storm the castle, essentially. But really, there's someone that lives inside that house. And, and I'd like to knock on the door, have them say, you know, who is it? And you say, it's me. They open up. You engage in meaningful dialogue and conversation. And you really just give Cubans the resources that they need to be successful. But then you take a step back and you let that change be organically Cubans, you know. All right, mi gente, calabaza, calabaza, that's a wrap for me. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to CubaCast. The podcast returns in two weeks. Ya viene, ya, ya, ya.